Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. We are now in what could officially be termed deep break, and we have more archival goodness on today's show. Today's archival goodness is about pelvic power. Are we at the part of the break where we just start doing pelvic exercises? <laughs> I. What would life be like devoting like a whole day to pelvic exercises? That is almost terrifying to me. Oh my God. You got to put it in the calendar. My calendar has an alert for like pelvic floor exercise and then we do them. It's like doing your stretches and then you're done and then you're done. Ugh. Just got to do them. Um, this episode that we are um, rerunning today first aired in April of 2017, so long ago. Wow. A lifetime ago. Like, who, wow. who were we? Who were we then? I don't even know. Wow. Wow. I, I am blown away by that. I was like, this podcast in 2017? I'm scared now. Um, and this episode was really fun to do, I have to say. And it features interviews with nurse Amy Roberts and uh, certified nurse midwife Laura Todaro and Diana Tosseg, who is a physical therapist with special training in pelvic health. And it was really nice to talk to all three of them because they just really, you know, there are all kinds of people on the healthcare spectrum who are invested in your pelvic health and people who are, I would say, really, really patient-minded and very forward-thinking in how they treat their patients. And it was just so, it was so nice to find people where you were like, okay, like, these are not, um, they're not outliers in the healthcare system. The healthcare system is full of people like this and you just have to know how to find them. And also pelvic health is really important and it's something that is so under-discussed. And I'm really glad that we were able to devote an episode to that. Me too. I learned so much from this episode the first time around that I am legitimately so excited to re-listen because like, let's be real, bodies change in the course of three years. And I am excited to be like, what What am I going to apply from this now that um, maybe I didn't quite hone in on the first time around? On to the long-awaited pelvic health episode. I'm so excited about this. How are you feeling? I, you know, my pelvis feels amazing. So I feel great. <laughs> Maybe we should go back because I was just asking you about this. I, I almost forgot about the original inspiration that made us want to do this episode, which was each of us having some bad experiences with the gynecologist slash doctors who are looking at our pelvic region. Yeah. So a couple of months back, I think that we both got really vulnerable about um, bad like gyno experiences. Yours was like hyper specific and mine was very much like... I cry every time. It's the worst. But also like my new feminist doctor was like, scoot your butt all the way to the end. And that was like revolutionary for me. <laughs> <laughs> butt scooch revolution. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it sounds so like it almost like sounds really funny because the gyno is like one doctor that if you are a woman or somebody who identifies as a woman, you will go to at least once and there is nothing pleasant about it. And unfortunately for like health reasons, you'll probably go to it like a lot. 
And so, you know, a lot being like at least once a year. Hot tip, when you make your, your gynecologist your primary care physician, it's very exciting. So yeah, so after we talked about these bad experiences, we got so many emails, both from people who had also had bad experiences with their gynecologists, but also from some people offering information and like resources. And so we've long been plotting an episode where we talk to actual experts, not just Google MDs like us, about what's up with pelvises and pelvic health. (laughs) And let me tell you, first of all, we have so many like pelvic sheroes in the CYG community. It's kind like it's kind of baffling. I know you can't see me, but this is my not surprised face. But also, I'm super proud because this is the best community. <laughs> it is the best community, but you know, and and also, like, it's it's really fascinating because I think this is what I've like learned from it. Right? Is that for for a long time on this show, like I have complained in some form or fashion about like uh, pelvic exams and how much I hate them, or about like my cramping in general. You know, like all of the, like, everything is unpleasant down there and it's not cool. And every time I would do that, at least like one or two people, one of the listeners would email and say like, hey, have you talked to your doctor about pelvic health? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, it's like a real time reminder that like, oh, this is like what friends do. Like when you complain about pain in your body, they're like, you know, not trying to like diagnose you like, oh, Amina is crazy. But, you know, they're just like, oh, like, this sounds like a thing that, like, we talk about all the time. And so it was such a, like, real-time reminder for me that, like, this is one of the added benefits of friendship and also of, like, the fact that, like, women make themselves, like, emotionally vulnerable is that there is a world in which, like, somebody is listening to what your, like, situation is and might even have solutions for you. Totally. And also provides the reality check that, like, hey, actually, maybe you don't just need to grit your teeth and put up with a really unpleasant medical experience. Like, maybe there's a better way or maybe there are more resources for you. Like, I have relied on friends so many times to remind me of that. So, yeah. Shout out to our extended friends. Totally. Who, like, <laughs> who all said that. Yeah. <laughs> the real lesson here, you're right, is, is that, like, if there, if you are in pain about anything, like, that is not a normal state of being. And there's, like, a different state of being that you can be in. Um, And, you know, so a couple of months ago when also like when we both talked about like the importance of like having like progressive holistics OBGYNs, there's hella nurses in this family and people emailed. And one of the common refrains that I heard was like, if you want a doctor who is like progressive feminist and like probably into some like holistic stuff, you should like consider seeing a midwife. And I was Mm. like, what? I like thought midwives were for people who were imminently having children. Like if I was honest, I didn't know the difference between a midwife and a doula. I thought a doula was a hipster midwife. And (laughs) so, you know, I was just like, oh, tomato, tomato. It's the (laughs) same thing. But it turns out that actually like uh, midwifery is like really fucking badass. And you don't have to be pregnant to go see a midwife And they're, like, very respectful of taking your entire, like, situation into hand um, when you go see them. Uh, I love that. And I also have to just say that, like, maybe part of this is an optics issue. Like, shout out to midwives who have online presences that do not center around 
childbirth because I think that like one thing that for me when I first learned about this thanks to all these emails I was surprised by the fact that all of the messaging on a lot of midwives publicly accessible pages is still centered around childbirth so even even though you know maybe they provide these services to people who aren't imminently having kids it can be hard to figure that out without some inside knowledge too totally So the first lady that I talked to was one of the listeners who emailed us, Amy Roberts, and she was a total badass, obviously. She like started talking to me about like medical literacy and I was like, what? Like, what is medical literacy? I like didn't even know that was a thing you're supposed to be literate about or, you know, or realize like how illiterate I was was about a lot of stuff. She's a feminist. She also talked about like, how because the history of obstetrics is like really unfortunate that's part of the uh that's part of like the problematic history of OBGYNery and really like where a lot of the distrust comes from people everything through the lens of history like makes sense why we make the choices that we make now right and the medical establishment not historically super feminist <laughs> i know like not historically super feminist but also you know i was like oh this is also like what happens for me when a lot of my care team is not female where mm-hmm. they're like you know and and not to say that like you know you should discriminate in your care team because i've had like great like dude dinos for sure But I realized that, like, because I was not seeing, like, representation at that level, it was a thing that I was not thinking about. There, Like, there's a reason, kind of, like, for for all of these things happening. But so anyway, Amy and I talk about, like, what pelvic floor um, (laughs) therapy is and kind of a little bit into, like, my own experience with it. So uh, listen to her. She's really smart and awesome. My name is Amy Roberts, and I am a registered nurse. You wrote us kind of an incredible note about um, nurse midwives and how it's possible that there are these like great progressive feminist holistic like doctors and medical (laughs) professionals out there, which kind of (laughs) blew our minds. (laughs) But I was wondering if you could talk specifically about the work that a nurse midwife would do and how that could apply both to women who are thinking about having children or women who have children or women like me who are child-free? Definitely. As a nurse, I've really just worked like alongside midwives, but midwifery really has re-emerged from having been this well-established profession globally to being kind of a response to obstetrics, doing a little bit of what I think you and Anne have been talking about on the podcast, which is maybe not empowering female patients and maybe knocking them out rather than letting them like be awake to make choices during childbirth. So a lot of midwifery in general is very informed by a desire to, to like react to that and do something better. I was really struck by when we had that episode a while ago about your standard like OBGYN visit, how many nurses wrote us I every time I go to the doctor, obviously I deal with nurses, but it was really unclear to me what the whole scope of work is that they do. And so now I understand that like a nurse can also give you like a well woman's visit and examine you. And that's not something that I was aware of before. Yeah. Nursing is a really definitely like a varied profession. And then just like with midwives, there's kind of different nurses too. Like you might be at your doctor or nurse midwife's office and the person who takes your vitals, like takes your temperature and your blood pressure 
they might not be like me, a registered nurse. They might just be like a medical assistant. But registered nurses, yeah, we have a pretty broad scope of practice and awareness. And also, we have the advantage of sometimes being a fly on the wall. So we don't have to take responsibility for everything that ultimately happens. But we also can observe and be like, this happens and maybe question mark. And maybe when the provider leaves the room, I'm going to try and like smooth things over a little bit. All of these nurses that are emailing us are amazing. (laughs) But is there like something intrinsic to the way that you like most nurses are trained that is different from how doctors are trained that makes them like better listeners and more caring Uh and like you know I'm just I feel like you would have well not more caring is the wrong characteristic but maybe more um attuned kind of you know to the kind of emotional needs that you have and you know I don't know I'm just like wow like look at all these feminist nurses everywhere if I could like pick a medical professional you know, and there was a box on ZocDoc or whatever thing you use to find your doctor. I was like, I want a feminist healthcare uh-huh. provider. But I, I feel like that's like that's a hard thing to like signal for. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, your question is a really good one. And I don't want to generalize because like I know a lot of physicians who are wonderful and I'll pick an OB or a midwife and you're it's going to be awesome, you know. But yeah, it's true. Like a lot of the role of the nurse is, is kind of to try and, and identify like what are people actually understanding? Like medicine is more the science and nursing is kind of in some ways, like Mm. how are we applying this to real people? So that's like emphasized in, at least in my like bachelor of science in nursing program, it was very strongly emphasized. Before we started recording, you like use the term medical literacy, which is great. Can you kind of expand a little bit more on that? Like what you mean by that term and what as patients like we should know? Ooh, okay. Two different things. The first one may be easier than the second one because I mean, there's so much we should know as patients. I mean, that even applies to me, even though I like work in healthcare. So medical literacy is just the ability to understand things that are being talked about in like a medical scenario. Like when I say blood pressure, does somebody even know what that means and what the implications are? And they may not. If I talk about like reducing the sodium in your diet because you have high blood pressure, do you know what sodium is and what foods it might be in? Those are kind of things I imagine you are like, yeah, I know what sodium is. Lots of people don't, though. Like, a huge number of people don't. I know what sodium is because my mom was obsessed with, like, (laughs) not having high sodium, like, anything in the house. Um, That's literally the only reason I know. (laughs) That that makes it hard, you know, to eat at home sometimes, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, and then medical literacy, I think, becomes an even bigger deal as anybody, including me, is throwing around words like preeclampsia. And just like talking about this and being like, you have it, but it's like the person may not even understand the whole rest of the conversation because they don't know what you're talking about in the first place. And then ways we can improve our medical literacy, gosh, I mean, it's tricky out there. Like, I imagine you're a New York Times reader and they're constantly like publishing medical columns, but it, (laughs) it tends to be like sort of like either alarmist or like more peripheral things 
Yeah, and, or they're like medical mysteries, like this right. doctor house would diagnose you with Lyme disease every single time. Right, like exactly. Yes. Yeah. And, We're done talking about house. And you know yes. that, and I feel your medical literacy is like, I would just assume you would know anything I would say to you from that point forward. No, I don't though. I think that it's, you know, it's, I, I think that it's a combination of like when you go to the doctor for, especially like a well woman's visit, you feel really vulnerable And it's hard to kind of advocate for yourself and know what you're supposed to do. But also, nobody kind of tells you how that visit is supposed to go. Yeah. I'm almost like embarrassed to say like, oh, I like for a long time, I didn't know what the difference was between the different kind of people that I talked to when I went to the doctor. It's like this person is a tech, this person is a nurse, this is the doctor. Like to me, they were all people that were going to poke and prod me. And I'm just trying to get out of there with like no bad news. Yeah, I mean, actually, like, when Anne was telling her story on that episode, it spoke to me personally because, like, who hasn't had an experience of, like, going to the gynecologist and they say something weird, like, their fingers are inside you and they, like, make some comments and you're, like, like, some words that have been said to me are, like, burned into my brain forever. You also sent us this article about, like, 12 ways to be a feminist healthcare provider yes. that we're going to put we're going to put in the show notes. Oh good. And like all like all of the advice is really really good, but I guess my question is like how do you like how do you find these people? Right. Besides just the like constant whispering <laughs> that happens right. between all of us. I'm like not. I'm really lucky that I found a feminist OBGYN, but it's literally because she was referred to me. Like I would have never you know, from like looking up her like doctor profile, like ever figured that out. Right. And, you know, as somebody who is a trauma survivor and all of this stuff, it's it's so important to me to have a doctor who will be like sensitive and really just like radically listen to me. Mm-hmm. So that's actually why I wrote you guys to be like FYI midwives. Like, because I do think that um, with the differences like in backgrounds of nurse midwives coming from nursing and choosing midwifery like if you're a person who does know what a midwife is you like found out about that for some reason related to what your interests are whether it be feminism or just a little bit of like a granola sensibility or whatever and so everyone I know who's like gone into midwifery has been just super concerned about these issues and it's like absolutely at the forefront because they're like you know medicine wants to tell everybody what to do medicine wants to like hold its knowledge up in an ivory tower and then like order people around including patients and midwives are like no like we want our patients to be the ones who are in the driver's seat and we're just giving them all the information we can to like make the best choice for them So I think if you're trying to find a provider who's a feminist, midwives are like an awesome place to start. Can you go to a midwife if you are not pregnant? You absolutely can. Yes. What? In fact, I do. My experience with like the two midwives I've been to just for GYN, it's been really just like very casual. I just feel comfortable talking with them. I've had really good experiences. And again, I don't want to diss like OBGYNs. I wrote you in my email, like OBGYNs. I worked in labor and delivery high risk for two years. They very literally save lives. And like sometimes a C-section is what you need. Like I'm absolutely uh, eternally grateful that that is like a service that is provided so well. Um, But the history of obstetrics is a bit unfortunate. Like they used to just sort of spread childbirth fever from the cadaver to like the woman giving birth 
And then when they took everybody into the hospitals, it was like very easy to spread all these infectious diseases that were ultimately really bad for people. But, you know, everybody I know who's gone into OBGYN who's like younger, not to be ageist, I think is a lot more motivated to also do the same things I'm talking about midwives wanting to do. It's also true, you know, not to be like transactional, like it's, uh, you know, like it's not like shopping. But for, for a lot of other things, it's like it has to be a fit. And I think that the kind of medical care and the kind of doctor that you go to also have to be a fit for you. Yeah. And I mean, we live in a capitalist society. Like everything is like shopping at the end of the day. I know. I mean, like I shopped for a good doctor and I love her. Like, you know, awesome. and the, it like, just like, so it took, like, it just someone. took a long time. Yeah. yeah. It just like, it took a long time. And it's like, now I look back at the, honestly, like the emotional turmoil that it was. And I was like, a lot of this was like wrapped up in not understanding the language, not like speaking up for myself, not feeling like I was being heard or like my pain was being taken as seriously as it could have, you know, and all of that stuff. Yeah. And but, you know, we're, we're, we're all on a journey. And <laughs> sincerely, like the number one thing is if you feel like somebody isn't like listening to you and taking you seriously, like if you are in a position to do so, find someone else. Like we're not all so fortunate that we can like always shop around. People are in lots of different situations with their insurance coverage, you know, and like where they live. But if you have choices and someone is making you feel like that, like there really are, I can say as a nurse who's observed hundreds of providers, there are people who very much have like their own standard for how other people should live their lives and they want to apply it to you. And it's not about your health. So if somebody's making you feel that way, like move on. That's great. That took me, I don't think that I would have known that in my 20s, yeah. <laughs> just because of my own personality. And also it's the, you always defer to the expert. Yeah. You know, and I'm just like, this doctor has my life in their hands, even though I'm literally going in to check my blood pressure. <laughs> just like, this is, right. I'm like, this is insane. What's one thing that you wish, if you could leave like your patients or like future patients with like one piece of advice, what would it be? Okay, my advice is, you know, if you're at the gynecologist, which of all the things that your listeners might be doing, that's probably the likeliest. I would say, remember, you always should have a chaperone in the room with you if you want one. And if that's not like a baseline assumption, particularly with male providers at the office you're going to, like, ask. And if people are not receptive, like, I would take that as a red flag. And my story is, I worked at a hospital with an OB who was actually doing like illegal things to patients, like filming them and taking pictures, not to make what? everyone paranoid. Yeah. It's a really sad story actually. And it was a new nurse who hadn't worked with him previously who reported the behavior when she was observing as a chaperone and it was happening in front of her with like a disguised pen. And that's why that like ended up becoming a whole big thing that kind of blew up. Oh my gosh, that's insane. Yeah. So not to make people paranoid. That was like Yeah, uh, but so so that's good to know. So you can ask for a nurse to be a chaperone like and have uh, another person in the room. Very much so, yeah. Great. In fact, that's I like did not know that. a baseline expectation, especially if it's like a male provider. Yeah, I think that that's just a good standard. That's good to know. Oh my gosh, Amy, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> Thank you so much for just like giving us uh, some of your time and expertise today. Oh, well, thank you so much for calling me, Amina. I'm like a huge fan of the podcast and to speak with you in person is like just wild. So thanks like, for everything <laughs> you guys have done with Call Your Girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> sorry, you said that, and I- that's how I feel when I get good info. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, tell me about the next brilliant expert that you spoke with. Oh my God. The next lady I spoke with, her name is Laura Todaro. She's a certified nurse midwife. Can you sense a theme here? Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> like, I didn't know anything about midwives. And now I'm just like, you know, after astronauts, the most important like job we have. I know. If there's one thing you leave this episode with, midwives doing the most important job. Well, one of the most important jobs. <laughs> My name is Laura Tadaro, and I am a certified nurse midwife. For me personally, that means that I care for pregnant and not pregnant patients in a community clinic, and then I also deliver babies at our county hospital. Yeah, I'm like, I'm a professional sick person. Great. (laughs) Um, Well, the reason that we're talking today is because you wrote us a great note after we had that episode where we talked about like body shaming at the doctor and just like complaining about pelvic exams, which is, let's be serious, like two thirds of our episodes. Yeah. But you said like, why wouldn't you consider seeing a midwife? And that had never occurred to either of us. So... I talked to another woman today who was a registered nurse and she also recommended seeing a midwife like she sees a midwife herself. And it had never kind of occurred to me that if you were not pregnant or planning on being pregnant that, um, you know, like you could be in business with a midwife. Totally. You know, I care for young women who are coming for birth control counseling or STD testing or today was kind of a typical day actually where I saw someone who was 36 weeks pregnant, I'm getting her ready for the delivery. Then I had someone for a pap. Then I had someone who came in for STD testing, someone for birth control, and then a woman who was coming for a breast exam and needing a, a mammogram. The whole gamut. The whole spectrum. That's great. Yeah. And you also said that you are trained specifically in performing gentle pelvic exams, especially yeah. for women who have a history of sexual or reproductive trauma. For sure. Yeah. In my clinic, Unfortunately, but this is actually true in most settings, I have a lot of patients who have had either sexual or reproductive trauma, and it's really of utmost concern that we care for them in a way that feels respectful and that honors their autonomy. And I would say that that's one of the like core practices of midwifery is that we're treating the whole woman, and so that's going to include all of her experiences up until the point that we see her. 
And some of that might mean actually that I limit the amount of exams that I do. Like I actually had a patient who came to me with concerns about vaginal discharge. It looks like, you know, she might have had some kind of vaginal infection going on, but she couldn't tolerate a pelvic exam because of um, sexual violence that she's had in her life. And so we didn't do one. Like I, I diagnosed her based on symptoms and a sample that I could get without doing a speculum exam. And then I talked to her today about maybe in the future coming back and that we could kind of work towards it because at some point in her life, she will need a pap smear. She didn't need one, the visit that I saw her for. What I often will do in those cases is have women insert the speculum themselves or at, at the very least, um, separate. Oh, wow. Them. So that helps you like maintain like a level of control, I guess. Yeah, for sure. If I have a woman, even in labor, let's say if I'm, I'm going to check a woman in labor and she has difficulty tolerating exams, which is very common, it's really uncomfortable, then I will have her separate her own labia and like, you know, be a part of the process and get her in as comfortable a position as possible. And in the clinic, you know, when we do need to do a speculum exam or certainly for procedures, you know, I do lots of IUD insertions and so forth. We do a lot of prep of just getting as comfortable as possible in, in the straps. And like you guys talked about the whole thing about getting your your butt basically hanging off the table to relax the pelvic oh, floor. That's been that's been a game changer for me. I was like, oh, my when my butt is relaxed, this appointment is fifty yes. percent better. I totally. had no idea. Yes. Yeah, these are just all things that, you know, are just kind of common practice to me and, and are becoming I think more common practice across the spectrum in terms of the medical profession and women's health care, but midwives have always been the ones who have been advocating for respectful care. Yeah. And I mean, I know that we framed, at least like on our show, this discussion a lot around, you know, like since it's Anne and me around like kind of straight cis women. But I know that you obviously are also trained in like how to care for lesbian women and bisexual women and yeah. transgender women as well. Yeah. So, you know, and I think that that's something that we haven't emphasized a lot on the show, but clearly... Yeah. You know, it's not just like straight ladies from LA and Brooklyn. For sure. <laughs> the doctor. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Here, I mean, I'm in the Bay Area. I live in Berkeley and I, I have had the, really the privilege of being able to serve a really diverse patient population. And my, my introduction to healthcare really came um, working at the Berkeley Free Clinic, which was 20, oh, I don't know, 25 years ago. Now, where I did my initial training, when I worked with patients who are like the most vulnerable, either a lot of homeless patients or patients who had mental health problems or um, sex workers, and then that kind of led me into doing doula work and attending births. And for many years, I taught childbirth classes, and um, in particular, I taught a class for lesbian and bisexual women through an organization that still is around called Maya Midwifery, and they both um, cared for lesbian and bisexual women throughout their lifespan and specifically through pregnancy and fertility issues. So I got to have a lot of experience working with those families and families of really of, of all kinds, but um, there's just no one way that women access care, right? Like anyone who yeah. has a vagina and a uterus um, that needs reproductive health care deserves to be honored in their full, their whole person, right? And so... For transgender women in particular, that can be a real concern. So yes, and at UCSF, we have a lot of training with that as well. Yeah, that's really cool. So I mean, like you uh, definitely like, you know, like are trained in and you really advocate for this like progressive holistic option, you know, to to get this kind of care. But if you're a patient and you don't live in the Bay Area, 
how do you kind of go about like finding professionals that have this same philosophy? Right. I mean, I do think so. There's there's the American um, College of Nursing Advice, which anyone could look up. Um, it's called ACNM. I'll actually. The American College of Nurses and Midwives? Of Nurse Midwives. American College of, of Nurse, Nurse Midwives. Midwives, or ACNM. So you can go to that website, and there will be a ton of information, and then um, there's a search option there as well. Um, and then you could also look. Every state will also have, like, you know, we have the California Nurse Midwives Association, and it varies from state to state. I know that you also can provide abortion care, right? Even though uh, it's kind of restricted based on the clinic that's receiving federal funding. Correct. But um, I didn't realize that that was part also of the, okay. like, can you tell I know nothing about midwives? Yeah, <laughs> right. It's like, this is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I just, yeah, I had no idea. Right. Well, I mean, abortion care is, is just part of the reproductive life of a woman. That's one of the things that kind of kills me about our current political climate is, you know, I'll have a patient that I'm caring for, which is actually a really serious condition and needs, you know, to be treated fairly quickly. And I could not, for the life of me, find a place for her to go to get her DNC within a few days because there just weren't, there just aren't enough providers. This, and of is, course, so, this is so nuts. I know. It's, it's such nuts. a r- routine part of healthcare. Completely. You know, I have hopes that I will... Um, further my training and be able to offer that service in the future. Uh, that makes me happy that there's like, really, I feel like everybody I've talked to today, just the level of compassion and professionalism that you yeah. have is just really, um, I don't know, I find that really heartening. Thank you for everything you do. That's cool. Thank you. Yeah, I am, um, you know, we're just doing the best we can in a pretty broken system, but you can always be guaranteed that a midwife is going to meet you kind of where you are in that moment with loving kindness and give you the best possible care that she can. Yeah. Um, So I guess my last question is, if you could impart like one bit of wisdom or clear up a misconception or something that a patient would have or that you wish that more people knew about um, the specific thing that you do, like what would that be? I, I think it would be simply that midwives, I have traditionally been the, the ones who have um, promoted and advocated for kind of a more holistic way of approaching women's health care and in particular um, reproductive um, and sexual health and that you would be more likely to get some of those needs met with a midwife than with other providers in the same setting. That's great. I am so pro-midwife. I'm like, I want to wear a t-shirt that says, I love a midwife. Yeah. I want a bumper sticker, like we've everything. Got we've got them. I'll totally send them to you. Oh my God. Anything for a midwife. <laughs> Let me know if you ever need anything. You are hilarious. That's my, that's my, that's my promise. No, it's true. You know, I think there's a part, there's a part of me that's like, uh, I feel so vulnerable right now. And also just very dumb. Like I feel very naive and dumb. Like how can you be 32 and not know how to take care of yourself? And the only thing that keeps me going is that I realize that a lot of people have these questions. They're just equally as embarrassed to ask. And I'm like, I will just, I will bite the bullet for all of us. It's ludicrous. I totally appreciate that. And I want to say that it's not an accident that you don't know about midwives either. It's not, I mean, there was an actual 
um, successful attempt to get rid of midwives, you know, a, a few centuries ago, and um, and almost did. You know, I mean, midwives were the wait. How the, what happened? Well, it was the the a huge part of who got burnt at the stake, right? The witches that got burnt at the stake were midwives. And, the witches and, their, and the midwives. That is a real yeah. thing. And so, you know, there was a time when we could have been obliterated, but we are back. Has stayed. And most people I know who are midwives, and of course I'm a part of that community, were found it to be a calling. And, um, and you know, we're going to keep up the keep up the fight. We do actually have, I would say... Um, as a little plug, in California right now, we have um, a bill that um, is heading to the Senate right now. It passed the assembly called AB 1612, which is to help um, nurse midwives in California um, have parity with other midwives across the um, country because California is only one of six states that still require, um, our licensure requires, it says that it requires physician supervision even though that doesn't mean that a physician actually has to be present for the, um, any of the work that we actually do, but they have to um, sign our admitting um, orders when we admit a patient to the hospital. And so we're looking to remove that um, wording, and then that would actually allow for us to practice in places where, like in 45 counties in California, there's no obstetrics provider at all. Um, and so women have to travel really far to get UAN care or to have prenatal care. It's funny. It's like this, everything that has to do with women's health care is a little, like they make it just a little bit harder to access. <laughs> Thank you so much, Laura. You like made my day. <laughs> Thank you, Amina. And so if you live in California, AB 1612 is a bill that you can push for locally. Uh, and, uh, you know, like be a good friend to the CNMs near you. I'm excited about this as a Californian. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm like, like, how do we make more midwives, please? The next person that I talked to is Dana Tosig. Uh, she's a physical therapist and she is great. She like works with outpatient orthopedic problems and she specializes in pelvic health specifically. So tell me a bit about how, how is like what she does different than what like a certified nurse midwife would do? Is like is she's specifically specializes in pelvic stuff? Is that it? Yeah. So she is like a PT. Her whole thing is um, specializing in pelvic health, which I'm like really grateful for. My doctor like really recommended uh, pelvic physical therapy before because of the amount of pain that um, I, I always felt in that region in general, like I've always been really tight. It like, it's always been an issue and it had never until like people started emailing me about it. It's something that I had never considered. And then it was like the double whammy of then I started going to a, a feminist like doctor. And then that was the first things that she like talked to me about. Yeah. I also, I love this too, because often when there's a conversation about Kegels or what you're doing for your pelvic muscles, it's done in the context of like, here's how to have better sex or like, or like pleasure, which don't get me wrong is like a fine lens, but like, I like a model that recognizes like, no, often like thinking about this, it like comes about because you're experiencing pain and like 
talk to an expert. Bodies are different. It's not like as straightforward as your favorite women's glossy magazine makes it seem. My name is Dana Tausig. I am a physical therapist and I work with um, general outpatient orthopedic problems, but I also specialize in pelvic health. This is kind of exciting for me um, because <laughs> I went to pelvic physical therapy for the first time last week and uh, yeah. it was game changer. Awesome. That's so good to hear. Uh, how did you decide that this is what you wanted to do? Like, what's the path to doing what you do? <laughs> so for me, I first um, heard of pelvic physical therapy when I was already in PT school. I went to a conference for PT students and heard a woman who specializes in, it's also called women's health physical therapy, though we're kind of in the process of broadening that to pelvic health because as it turns out, more than just women have pelvises and also... Shocker! (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, you know, we're going for pelvic health. But heard somebody giving a talk on what at that time was more broadly called women's health. And it really kind of plucked at my feminist heartstrings. A lot of what we do in physical therapy, from my perspective, is about empowering the patient anyway. And then to bring in the... Bring in the vagina is a whole nother level of empowerment (laughs) that I felt uniquely suited to help people address. This makes me so happy without going too much like TMI into my own issues that Mm -hmm. I like, I've been dealing with like some like uterus, like vagina problems for a while now. And literally like I would say four or five years of like constantly going to the doctor. And the last, I have a new gynecologist that I really like. She's a feminist. She's great. And she suggests like pelvic therapy and I had never heard of it. Mm-hmm. And I was honestly like, it, it was kind of a moment of like, wow, the more you know, and just like, I just, I had no idea. So why would a human, what is like the spectrum of pain that you have to be on to go to the, your kind of doctor? In the physical therapy perspective, we focus on function kind of above all else. So In all honesty, part of my job, both when we're focusing on the pelvis and when we're not focusing on the pelvis, is telling people that pain is a part of life. Um, So there is some amount of bodily pain that is somewhat expected. But when it starts to interfere with your function in life, meaning your ability to do the things you love to do, to, you know, participate fully with your friends and your lovers, to do things joyfully, then then it's a problem that you should be reaching out to someone about. So this is stuff like bladder pain, endometriosis pain, any kind of like urinary or like fecal leakage and like in that general area. Pretty much. We pretty much can broadly categorize them into any pain that has to do with the pelvis. So yeah, bladder, pain of the vulva, so kind of external what people would call vaginal pain or internal vaginal pain, tailbone pain, perineal pain. Those are all distinct things. And then on the other side of the broad stroke stroke spectrum, we have the incontinence type problems as well. So one of the types of urinary leakage or fecal leakage, those, yeah, those all fall into the realm of things that people might see us for. Um, I know this, but for our listeners, what is kind of like a typical, you know, like visit look like when you go in, depending on the kind of pain that you have, I guess? Yeah. And it will, it will vary certainly depending on the patient. And it will also vary to some extent, depending 
on the provider. And that's, it's a small variance. There are certainly some things that we are all expecting to do, but typically with most physical therapy, when you first walk in, you're going to talk to your therapist for a while and get, we want to get in a, get a sense of what you're coming in for, what your functional problems are, meaning, you know, how it's affecting you in daily life. Sometimes with a pelvic problem, you'll be asked to fill out a bladder or bowel diary ahead of time because that also gives us a sense of how your muscles are functioning down there. And we'll kind of talk about all that stuff to start. So sometimes I end up talking to people for 15 minutes. Sometimes we end up talking for 45 minutes, depending on how long the story is. We'll ask about sexual activity, And hopefully you'll also be asked about any history of sexual trauma, anything that we need to be aware of moving forward. And then once we've kind of wrapped up the basics of what we're going to talk about at that first appointment, we move on to a physical exam. What I would will do next is a more general physical exam to start. So we look at posture, generally look at leg strength. We generally check out the abdomen for any scars probably feel at your belly, look at how you're breathing, which you mentioned at some point in the past couple of weeks is a thing for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like, who knew? Like if your pain is so sharp that you can't breathe, you should probably get off like WebMD and go to the doctor. (laughs) Right. So that's a life lesson, I guess. It's a process. I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm learning to listen to my body. But also just how you breathe can affect how your pelvic floor is functioning as well. So it can kind of be a little bit of a vicious cycle. So we look at breathing and then once we get through all that general stuff, depending on if the patient is up for it, we'll do an internal exam. And internal exams will be either vaginal or rectal, depending on what's going to be more pertinent for the problem. You know, everything we do is really step by step and it's patient consent every step of the way. So we'll both look at and palpate, so touch for any painful spots externally to start. So pressing around the vulva, seeing if there are any particularly tender points there, that can cue us into if there's something going on internally um, and then potentially moving on to an internal exam. Our internal exams that everyone should should realize, we don't use speculum. So... Well, I don't. You may have had one that did. And generally, our the training that I went through is we generally don't because by and large, what we're looking for is how how the muscles feel, both when they're contracting and when they're resting. The visual aspect of what is going on internally is not as critical for what we're addressing. In general, people have been screened by a gynecologist before they've come to me anyway. So anything that needs to be assessed with a speculum has already been assessed. That makes sense. So that ends up being just a single lubricated finger for the internal exam. And it's a combination of feeling around at different angles, both lower down in the vaginal canal, um, where there's one layer of pelvic floors, and then higher up, there's a whole other layer of pelvic floor muscles that most people don't really recognize are there. And so you might end up getting poked in places that you didn't realize you had. Beyond the feeling of the muscles, then we also usually kind of assess how well they're working. So we ask people to squeeze and relax and cough. 
to see if the muscles are doing what you think they're doing when you ask them to do those things. And that gives us a general sense of if the muscles are doing what they're supposed to do. Um, I want to go back to a thing that you had said earlier about um, people coming also to physical therapy if they've, um, like, they're survivors of any kind of sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. And so... Is that something that like your your like OBGYN would refer you to, or is that something that you kind of you need to know? And also how how open are like physical therapists to really working through that trauma with you as opposed to just like, you know, like the body stuff? Right. So um you know, in the, the the first part of your question, just in terms of is that a, a thing that you'll be referred for? It, it's all about the healthcare community that you're in and just increasingly in our healthcare system, we need to self-advocate. So it's just kind of good to know what, what options are out there for you. Um, and if it doesn't necessarily come up from your provider, it's, it's just always good to bring it up to them and see if they think it's a valid um, option for you. In terms of physical therapists being open to working with that. So we are a certain type of therapist. We are not another type of therapist. So, um, that makes sense. <laughs> we, <laughs> uh, we hear a lot from people when you work on somebody's body, things come out, people share a lot with you. However, we are not trained as psychotherapists. So often we recommend that people are simultaneously in psychotherapy or in counseling so that they're doing that with somebody who can really give them the correct tools to work with that. We shouldn't be the people who are working with patients on that. However, we should be people who are respecting boundaries that are dependent on that, being respectful of, of triggers and needs because of those kinds of experiences. In general, the pelvic specialty within physical therapy, it's continuing education training that we have to go through outside of physical therapy school. So if you're working with a therapist who has gone through one of the kind of their two main schools that you can go through for that training, we will have been exposed to working with survivors. The training is not super extensive, but it is a thing that is definitely on our radar. We also, because we are a type of therapy, we have an opportunity Unlike a lot of other providers these days, we get to see patients more often than a lot of other providers do, and we get to see them for a longer period of time than a lot of other providers do. So we have the tremendous privilege of getting to take our time with patients. It's not ideal, but I have, have had a patient who it took, oh gosh, almost six months of working with her regularly before she was comfortable doing an internal exam. And was that a particularly productive six months? Mm, kind of in that it got us to the point of her being comfortable enough to do an internal exam. But, you know, she was able to go exponentially further with her therapy once we got to that point. From my own experience, at least, too, I feel that, um, you know, and probably like you don't love hearing this, but the mm -hmm. part of what you do is really like coaching and empowering your patients because mm -hmm. you have to feel comfortable like every step of the way. And uh, I think I, I was really I was really struck by how like consent is so key, you know, in the process. Yeah, absolutely. And so it makes you I mean, you know, like that. it sounds really like, duh, but, you know, I feel like <laughs> you don't always get that at the doctor. And so I, I was just like really struck by that where I was like, oh, like this is a thing I'm like terrified. about. Mm -hmm. And instead, because my provider was like very like 
conscientious and like yeah it was like it was like consent was part of every step of the way and I just I felt really heard and listened to and so yeah I don't know it made that it made that go like way better than I expected yeah absolutely um I mean there was a study done that I definitely don't know like the author off the top of my head where um they used sensors on women's pelvic floor muscles and showed them scenes from scary movies and when we (laughs) saw scary movies or saw scary things, by and large, the muscles tighten. It's a, it's a, that makes it's, sense. A, right. <laughs> it's a built-in reflex. So if you are working with a patient with pain and they are not comfortable and they are at all on guard or fearful, like you're just not going to get anywhere. No, it's true. Um, it's like, I realized that a lot of my discomfort usually during um, any kind of physical exam was that I was like, oh, wow, I'm so tense uh-huh. from like the information and the fear that I'm not like, like my body is just like, nobody, nobody is coming in. <laughs> and, I was like, and I realized that was like 50% of what was going on with me. But that's t- like, that took a long time to kind of, you know, figure out what was going on there. So Right. And then begin to override is a whole other thing, too. Yeah. yeah. And now that I'm part of the pelvic mafia, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, do you know about this hashtag on Twitter? Like, I am familiar. Yeah. I am I am not on Twitter, but I see references to it via other social media. Yeah. I died. Pelvic health hashtag is amazing. It's yes. all about like pelvic pain <laughs> and like women's health and just like getting your pelvis straight. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot more conversation about the, about it out there if you know where to look. <laughs> it's real well, you know, it's it's just a, um, you were saying before we started recording how it's just like a part of health that people don't talk about a lot. And it's, you know, and like, I, like, I, I know that I know that firsthand and it's crazy because of how much pain you can be in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, and it also goes for kind of the other diagnoses we see as well for the incontinence diagnoses too. People don't, you're not going to talk to people about that generally. I'm ready to talk about the peeing because I've had this really bad cold all week and every time I sneeze, I pee and I'm concerned. (laughs) Is this, how much pee is normal pee? I'm like, I'm willing to go on the record about this because I'm concerned. (laughs) Well, good. I'm happy. Not about your peeing. So (laughs) there is, in general, it's not normal for women to leak. Like at all? Pretty much. Uh, Aside from like the six months postpartum, we should have healthy enough pelvic floor muscles that we should be able to control it. Well, good thing I'm in physical, like a pelvic physical therapy right now. Yes, absolutely. Now I have a new thing to talk about. You should should mention it. And they they can totally be intertwined as well because muscles that are too tight don't necessarily do their job well. I mean, this this cold is really bad, and it's every sorry. time I sneeze. But it was, like, it was concerning. I was like, this has never happened to me before. Ugh, it's true. You turn 30 and your whole body falls apart. Oh, my it's gosh. True. You start it's noticing. True. I know. It's true. It's so true. I'm literally falling apart and melting like, every day. Yeah, I say that to people uh, frequently. I was in PT school when I was in my 20s, and I learned about how your body falls apart as you age, but it literally took me hitting 30 to be like, Oh no! Yeah, it's crazy. It's like first the hangovers get bad, and then everything <laughs> falls apart. But so okay, so I'll talk to my doctor about that. But like, this is like easily fixable, right? It's like do some Kegels, like get your floor straight, right? Or is it like, am I going to have to do everything they say in the incontinence commercials now? <laughs> um, 
It's work. I'm like, please diagnose me over the Skype. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So no, it's work. It gets a little bit more complicated when, and this is one of the big conversations that is happening in the sphere of the internet that actually talks about this, is that Kegels aren't just the answer. Um, There have been like a handful of articles in the past few years about how that's not all that we're doing. Um, because they're not necessarily appropriate for everybody. And if you are the kind of person that does have pain, odds are that you shouldn't be jumping into cranking out Kegels um, because your muscles aren't in a happy place to do it. But if it is just an incontinence situation, then, then odds are it is more of a straight Kegels path. There is a statistic that something along the lines of 30% of women who are just like verbally instructed on how to do Kegels or who just get like a handout on doing Kegels will actually do them wrong in some way. Yeah, I mean, I still kind of don't know what they're supposed to be. It like baffles me because nobody can check that you're doing them right, you know? Except for a pelvic physical therapist. (laughs) Yes! I love that I just went on the record about my uh, possible incontinence. (laughs) But at least now I have the right doctor. Yes. Oh my gosh. It it is being talked about. I mean, yeah, that's the other thing too, is that like the more, and this is kind of why we wanted to do this episode, is that the more that you talk about this stuff, it's not, you know, like, I mean, some stuff is like very serious and by all means, like be very private about it and deal with it in the realm of your own private sphere. But some of the stuff is like, the only way to demystify it is if we all like admit like, you know, that every once in a while you sneeze and you pee, it's okay. Right. <laughs> uh, it's, it's the only way to know, you know, when you're crossing the line into it being a problem and that there are resources out there to handle it when it does become a problem. Uh, what do you want kind of um, people who are your patients or who are prospective patients, um, what are things that you would like them to know? Like either like to demystify for them or to like make them feel better about or, you know, like a common misconception. Um. Well, we kind of already touched on one of the most common misconceptions. I've just had too many kind of older women come in with more significant incontinence. And when I ask them how long it's been going on for, they'll be like, oh, well, I leaked just a normal amount for years. And you're just like, what do you mean leaking a normal that's amount? That's me, that's um, me. <laughs> <laughs> Nip it in the bud now so that it doesn't become an abnormal amount. <laughs> we shouldn't be leaking. Oh, and there was a thing in the CrossFit community a few years ago too, saying that uh, it was cool for uh, women CrossFitters to pee because they were working out so hard and also not true. (laughs) Like wetting yourself isn't, isn't cool. Know that there are things to be done if you are having pain and there are conservative things to be done. So in the healthcare scheme of things, when we talk about conservative measures, we're talking about minimally or completely non-invasive interventions. So whereas the most invasive would be a surgery and then the least invasive being learning how to breathe properly. (laughs) Um, You don't necessarily need to jump into medicating yourself and you don't necessarily need to jump into a spiral of surgeries, which is a thing that too many women do with pelvic problems as well, that there are less invasive things to try first. And 
it is worth it to try because the less invasive, the less likely you are to have side effects and problems down the road as well. Ooh, that's good. Um, I mean, so in terms of like going to uh, physical therapy, is that like with my insurance, my insurance covered it and my doctor referred me, but is it like, a, you know, without knowing that like everybody's insurance situation, it's something that's like fairly accessible, right? Like it's not a, it's not like you have to go to Switzerland to like get a fancy operation. Yeah, no, though it's not well talked about. It is definitely a growing field. You can find pelvic physical therapists in a lot of places. There are a couple of kind of key websites you can go to to find people who have gone through the two specific training schools that I mentioned before. Ooh, what are those websites? If you search for a find a PT via the APTA, which is the American Physical Therapy Association's section on women's health, if you look at their find a PT or a PT finder function. And then the other main school is called Herman and Wallace. And that way, you know, you're finding someone who has gone through these specific training paths in terms of it being covered by insurance. Um, generally, the way insurance works is Medicare sets the rules and Medicare does cover this to a large extent. A lot of times insurances, though the physical therapists legally don't require a referral from your doctor, a lot of time insurance wants a referral from a physician before you go to a physical therapist. So you might need to go through that path anyway. But those are kind of the things to keep in mind. You can find someone who is, you know, abundantly trained to do it and you might want to get a referral even though the physical therapist might not necessarily require it. Thank you so much for joining us, Dana. This was really eye-opening. Awesome. I'm so happy that we got to talk. Thank you so much. I know. Thank you for treating my incontinence and for diagnosing <laughs> <laughs> all of my other pain issues. I've never been to any kind of physical therapy before, LOL, because I'm not an athlete. I joke. Uh, <laughs> but I'm a pelvic athlete. Oh, contraire. Your pelvis is working overtime. <laughs> I know, but I'm a pelvic athlete. So, like, that's what I go to the doctor for. And, uh, you know, and again, like, um, I work with a team that is, like, mostly women. They're all, like, super respectful. They're great. And um, they go to really great lengths to explain to you, like, what is going on. So if you're somebody who is, like, really uncomfortable with, um, like, manual exams and that kind of stuff, the first couple of sessions of physical therapy actually, like, might not even involve that for you. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like, this is another place where, like, having full disclosure with your care team about, like, what you're comfortable with and... And if you have experienced trauma or if like these kinds of things are hard for you, like really letting them know upfront because, you know, like I know that it's really hard to be vulnerable, but actually like everybody wants to work with you and nobody, nobody wants to shame you and nobody wants you to be in pain or to do like anything that you don't want to do. And if they do, they should not be in the health profession. <laughs> That's kind of like the, the thing, honestly, that I learned from talking to these like all three women today is that like you know, if you, if you can like find the courage to advocate for yourself, the system can work for you. And if it's not working, that's kind of your sign that you should go somewhere else. Ugh. Love, love, love to talk about pelvic power and pelvic health. I still remember the first time we ran this episode. My, the biggest shock that happened to me is that I didn't know that it was not okay to pee even a little bit when you laughed. <laughs> 
How old was I in 2017? Definitely younger than now. And I was like, wow, that girl did not have it together. Um, and I'm proud to say that this girl has it together. So it's, uh, you know, a lot can change in a couple of years. A lot can change in one's pelvic floor in a couple of years. Like, that is true. You know, and it's like any other area of health, truly, just take a couple of minutes to do the homework and it works. It literally works. I am living proof that it works. I love it. I um, will see you on the internet. Bye, boo. You can find us many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your faves. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. Call us back. Leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. And you can buy our book, Big Friendship, anywhere you buy books, but we are really partial to independent bookstores. Our theme song is by Robin, original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our producer is Jordan Bailey. This podcast is executive produced by Gina Delvac. <laughs>